0: One day. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, you're here in the UK on a flying visit um, and we're so grateful that you've um, squeezed in a chat with the BMJ because I know your new book, Being Mortal, will really resonate with our readers. Um, it tackles some big issues, some of the biggest issues, and on the front cover it says "Aging, illness and what matters in the end. Um, so what led you to want to talk about those issues?
1: Um, I think it was in some sense, my feeling of lack of competence with um, patients whose problems I could not fix. You go in, especially as a surgeon, your training um, is out of wanting to understand disease, understand how people experience it, but then to be able to fix it. And of course, we all experience and practice, but don't have a lot of training in how to deal with the unfixables. Um, Chronic illness where people are only getting worse, frailty um, and then of course terminal illness. Uh, I found that in my practice, I was often, uh, faced with a patient who, you know, the choice was, well, could we just do this one more thing? There was always this one more thing we could try. Um, and the alternative felt to the patient and sometimes to me like failure, giving up. And I knew that wasn't the way we should think about it. And, um, uh, but that didn't mean I knew how to how to uh, pave the path that allowed for the best possible outcome under the circumstances. And then you add to it that along the way, my father, who was a surgeon, was diagnosed with a brain tumor himself, and um, an astrocytoma in the brainstem and spinal cord. And we knew he would be on a path where you know we'd have to navigate surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, but not want to sacrifice priorities that were important to him and uh and so the process of writing the book was my investigation of how should I be practicing differently and how um how might we take care of my father what might he do differently
0: and the book draws attention to the medicalization of sort of society kind of wider problems of society like aging and death not problems but issues of society um and there are kind of a number of reasons why we've ended up in this place, which you talk about in the book. And one of those is accepting the limits of, of medicine um, and recognizing what medicine can do. And is that something you felt in your own practice and others that you saw perhaps in your experiences with your father that, that people weren't able to kind of recognize those limits and, and say when, when it was time to not do that one more thing?
1: Um, yes yes uh it was always there there are many forces the patient the family your anxiety as a doctor yourself pushing in the direction of doing just that one more thing we um you know prognosis is an uncertain science and we're often optimistic we have great great confidence in our abilities that's why we become doctors (laughs) and um uh, but but there is this pattern of, uh, as, you, as you noted, the medicalization of mortality. I, over the last 50, 60 years, it, it, it is quite a dramatic change. You know, in the 19, around 1950, the majority of people died in their home. Um, and that's in part because if they became seriously ill, there was real doubt how much medicine would have to offer. Half a century later, we can offer a lot. Um, and the result is that now 80% die in institutions, in the UK, uh, 60% die in the hospital, another 20% in care homes. It's a very small percentage who actually uh, seek and obtain hospice care. Um, Those who die in institutions, it's often, you know, where we are uh, providing, you know, that one step more intensive care, ventilator um, uh, dependence, um, and not recognizing that uh, that we're often um, increasing complications, shortening lives by going for that fourth round of chemotherapy, doing that last-ditch operation, um, and, uh, and are not um, being very effective in dealing with the anxiety of our patients and families, which is a very normal reaction for, for them as they go through these experiences.
0: Um, it is. It is hard, though. I mean, most doctors are trying to do their best and feel that they're doing right by their patients. But many will recognise the situations you describe in your book of patients with kind of who are facing serious illness and perhaps the end of their life. They they get caught up in that hope too. Um, and the book raises some questions about how we best kind of deal with that how, how do we help patients navigate this kind of path through treatments and offer them you know guidance through that
1: well part of the way I tried to figure it out was just by um, interviewing and talking to as many people as possible I talked to patients and families about their experiences with serious advancing illness um, I talked to uh, palliative care physicians geriatricians Oncologists, intensive care unit doctors, hospice workers, nursing home aides, and out of that, you see the variation in the way people approach And there is a there is a, a, a kind of positive deviant group who are particularly effective in helping people cope with these um, these decision points. And um, when I'd ask them, I'd say, you know, what what are Help me understand what I'm seeing that you're doing so differently that shapes the direction that, that, that goes along. I, I think um, what, I, what emerged is a couple of basic principles. First of all is understanding that um, everybody has priorities in their lives besides just living longer. Second, that the most reliable way to find out what people's priorities are is just to ask. And in the majority of instances, we do not ask. You know uh studies, for example, of cancer patients in the very late stage, on average, only four months to live in one study uh, only a third did the physician discuss with the patient what their priorities and goals might be for the end of life. Now, how to broach it, that subject, how to even use the words um, when you fear losing the confidence of the patient that's what struck me so. You know, there were a few basic approaches that almost questions that I've incorporated into my practice out of learning from these folks. So number one was just understanding that people don't come to grips with their own prognosis just by giving them facts. And the most important question to ask often repeatedly over time is, what is your understanding of where you are with your condition? And people will start to name that they're failing, that they're dying, um, and that's part of how they wrap their mind around it then there are the questions that help you understand their priorities like what are what are your fears and worries for the future what are your goals if your health worsens or time is short what outcomes are unacceptable to you what are you willing to sacrifice and what are you not willing to sacrifice and as i found myself asking those questions more of patients i found we were I was reaching a point where in my appointments with patients, you know, I was doing less of the talking. I, you know, the, the the mode of most, of doctoring that I had arrived at was what I call doctor informative. Lots of facts and figures. Here are the pros, here are the cons, here are the risks, here are the benefits. What do you want? And invariably they'd say, well, what would you do, doctor? What would you do for your mother? And And I didn't know enough about them to offer much counsel and guidance to know where they were coming from. But with these answers to these questions, I could begin to say, well, you know, if your biggest fear is, is that you're going to not be able to return home or that your um, thinking would be impaired. And those were my father's fears when I asked him these questions. You know, he worried that he wouldn't be able to be social. He wouldn't be able to be cognitively intact. Uh, he was becoming quadriplegic. And so that's what we prioritized. And we suddenly understood that it wasn't about giving up On chemotherapy, it was recognizing what we were fighting for and that the chemotherapy was going to take away the things that were most important to him as he neared the end, rather than allow him to continue to fight for those components of care.
0: I mean, in the book, you speak to a palliative care doctor who tells you that a family meeting is like a procedure and requires just as much skill as an operation, and perhaps that's something we haven't focused on as much in our, in our training, in our practice. Um, what also came across in your book was that in these conversations that you shared um, with patients um, and the conversations that you described that your father had with his doctors, it sounded as if the patient often was up to speed and, and ready to discuss these things, but sometimes the family lagged behind and weren't quite as ready. Is that something you you noted?
1: It's clearly the case that not everybody in the family are all together, and that becomes a more, a, an even greater complexity for the doctor to navigate, not to mention the patient themselves. Um, you know, as I describe um, many of the cases, it's very clear that People are advancing at different rates towards their understanding of where they are with a condition. The patient sometimes is ahead of the of the spouse or the child um, uh, often. And that was the case with my father who, um, you know, when we had an interview with a hospice just to see whether it was something he wanted to consider, he immediately signed up. <laughs> and my mother was not prepared for that. In fact, the hospice worker, almost as if it was totally normal, just said, and it is normal. And yet it isn't normal. The worker said, um, so, you know, when you die, what funeral home would you want? How would you want your body to be disposed of? <laughs> and, and he knew exactly what he wanted. He said, I want to go to Jaeger's funeral home, which is around the corner. I want to be cremated. I want the following things to happen. And my mother sat there stunned in silence not even knowing what to do about how fast this suddenly felt like it was moving for her and yet you know we knew it was all coming the capacity to ask questions and to constantly allow the patient to guide what they're ready for they're the most powerful person for bringing the the rest of the family around and often the doctors around (laughs) Um, and they're your ally now sometimes you have severe denial about 5% of patients have, you know, very deep denial, don't, don't at all recognize what's happening to them. And what I also learned from the palliative care doctors is that you can do harm trying to, you know, shake them and force them to recognize, you know, you're going to die. Um, and in many cases, those are people who you really that's where you need the palliative care expertise because that's, that's the most difficult situation to walk through and they're most likely to have a great deal of suffering at the end. And, 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 um, and sometimes that's, that's the way it is.
0: Yeah, that is key, isn't it? Gaging that, that readiness for, for these conversations and the timing too. I mean, when, when do you, did you find was the best time to bring these up? Is, is there a best time to have these conversations?
1: Well, so um, what clearly is the case is we bring it up too late if we bring it up at all. We we are bringing it up very late in the game, uh, and I commonly was had been doing that as well. Um, the uh, there's a the way I've come to think of it is, you know, at the very start you're just bringing bad news, and you can't lead in one conversation somebody to go through well here's the bad news about your new diagnosis now what do you want to do about it and what are your goals for the end of life like you know that is just overwhelming but over time there do come uh points where the condition advances and it opens the window to being able to have the to ask the questions before crisis arrives so you know if the first um round of therapy has failed or there have been complications from surgery or you're taking them into a very risky circumstance. That is a moment when you say, well, you know, we're, um, we're hoping for the best. Um, uh, but I have to worry about, you know, complications or things not, not, um, working out for the best either. And so what is your understanding of your condition and where it is at this point what are your fears and what are your worries and then you you know you've opened the door to being able to address um, you know what they will what what you what you are not going to sacrifice along the way and what what you are going to be willing to sacrifice in their quality of life as they proceed
0: you touch on the issue of assisted dying dying with dignity in the book Um, can you talk more about your thoughts on that
1: yeah, I have a complicated set of views. I do think it's um, heartless if we are unwilling to address the fact that some people have um, unbearable suffering. On one level, and I describe it even with my own father, where his pain became so severe that we were giving doses of um, narcotics that sometimes led him to um, stop stop breathing um, uh, briefly at first and, and then longer periods later. And we all accept in medicine now that that is not euthanasia, that that is treating suffering, and that's appropriate. Uh, the further question of whether there are people who have such unbearable pain or other suffering that we simply are not able to get on top of it, you know, there are some people who have that circumstance. And um, and I think we are heartless if we're unwilling to uh, consider as a society being able to provide a prescription that can allow people to hasten death and relieve their suffering. Now, on the other side, I consider um, an assisted death a failure, however. Um, uh, When the Netherlands adopted it, um, it worries me that it's now about 3% of the population who choose that as their way to death. it is, uh, Netherlands was very late to bringing hospice and palliative care. And if you're not providing palliation against suffering and people choose this as the other way to go, it, it, it relieves, in some sense, you're avoiding the burden of assisting people with living all the way to the end. To me, the goal is not a good death. The goal is as good a life as possible all the way to the very end. And, um, uh, you know, as we see this debate unfold, It should be a very small percentage of the population that uh, end up having these needs. It should be carefully um, implemented. In Washington State, Oregon State, and the United States, it's less than 1% who choose this pathway. And what's interesting is that when people get their prescription, only half use it because it's often relief enough to know that the option is there if their suffering should become unbearable.
0: You mentioned the, the focus on, on a good life all the way to the end, and that is a, a, a major message of the book. You mediate on, on what a good life is in the book. Can you tell us what you came to understand by what a good life is from your research in the book, from your experiences?
1: Well, so um, yes, there are a couple of things. Number one is that the focus on um, uh, assisted death also highlights the point that it, that it only is about this final moment at the end. And What, in fact, is happening over time as you struggle with illness or frailty is that you have many weeks, months, sometimes years of dealing with diminished capacity. And um, we don't have a viewpoint in medicine beyond the fact that a good life is one that's healthy and independent. Um, And so we struggle with what we're actually fighting for for patients when they're not healthy and no longer capable of being independent anymore. We have a very narrowed view. Um, I was very influenced by a range of research, including some work by a Stanford researcher named Laura Carsonson looking at how people's um, uh, lives change as they age and or as they face serious illness in their life. And um, one of the things is that um, even though as people age, they become less healthy and more disabled, they actually are happier as time goes on. It's a group of people who have lower levels of anxiety, lower levels of depression, um, higher, um, likelihood of feeling calm and at peace in their life. They tend to have a narrowed circle of social life. Um, but a very deep concern to be deeply connected to that narrower circle of people. Um, they're less acquisitive and focused on achieving and getting things. (laughs) Um, And their priorities change. Their priorities become um, ones that, even though they um, may be in a wheelchair, may need some nursing care for part of the day or all of the day, they do have purpose and goals. And um, our emphasis that, you know, as you face needing help of nursing and and other conditions, that safety and health come first, actually leads to sacrificing things that people find really important to their lives. You know, I, I give the example of um, our medically prescribed diets of, you know, pureed food for the Alzheimer's patient. And then I see in these nursing homes, you know, in one case, an Alzheimer's patient in their 80s who's hoarding cookies. Like this one joy they have in life and they're not allowed to have it. And, um, and they're living in an institution that can't recognize that that is really important, that's so focused around safety that it actually comes to resemble a hospital um, built around a nursing station. I visited um, places that um, redesigned themselves to be built around a kitchen just like a home and the, the um, residents could go to the kitchen and open the refrigerator and take out anything they wanted. And and that was controversial because you know suppose a diabetic goes to the refrigerator and takes out a soda or that Alzheimer's patient goes in there and takes out a cookie. You know that, there was a, a great phrase that uh, that um, one of the reformers said to me. They said that safety is what we want for those we love, but autonomy is what we want for ourselves. And so, you know, understanding that ultimately, it's not just the joy of small pleasures like eating or others. Um, people have loyalties in their life, things that they live for that are bigger than themselves. Those could be their family. It could be an animal they're caring for, and I describe. A nursing home that allowed people to own their own pets, um, and what a dramatic effect that had on people's lives. Um, People may have a loyalty where they um, they want to give of themselves to the country. They uh, are worried about politics, or they're um, you know devote themselves to beauty or to God or to ideals. We um, lead people to expect passive lives, whether they're in hospitals or in their old age and that is when they become miserable that is when that is what we all fear and I think this understanding that um, e- that you can have a good life even if you're not healthy even if you're not dependent even if your life is becoming shorter and shorter and that there are things that people um, have as major goals or priorities um, that we can recognize and serve um, that as much as anything, I pull out through the stories of describing person after person who can find that kind of space and how people in healthcare can often help them achieve it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so much to take away from the book. So personally, you know, you think about what your own priorities are and what, and for your family and professionally, how it might change your practice and then wider sort of reflecting on how society, as a society, we can get to a place where we're enabling this to happen. Um, and I feel we've just scratched the surface here. Um, I know our readers will be interested in upcoming projects that you might have. So what's next for you?
1: (laughs) Well, it's become a mix of many things. So I run a research center called Ariadne Labs, which is a health systems innovation center. And it incorporates um, a variety of work, some of which has been related to previous writing, some not, but, it ranges from work um, where, we're, where we're trying to see if we can improve outcomes at the beginning of life, how you come into the world. So we have a project in India, a basic checklist for um, reducing uh, death rates in, in um, medical center delivery in India by making sure that, you know, basic standards that have been around for a long time can be followed. But also in, in um in developed countries, we're looking at what we can do to reverse the the, the skyrocketing rate of C-sections, and now also um, uh, NICU admissions, neonatal ICU admissions uh, for infants, for newborns. Then we're also continuing our work in surgical care where we've um, uh, been Uh, trying to bring in as the standard of care and it's increasingly now the global standard of care a basic checklist for surgery but we've now added on um, emergency checks um, that we're testing in about uh, 50 hospitals um, that um, uh, have been effective in reducing the likelihood basic errors in the resuscitation of people who have a crisis in the operating room how that occurs and then we're actually running a trial um, at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, trying to see if training in, at the about how doctors approach the end of life um, could allow us to replicate results that are achieved by palliative care doctors for people who are facing the end of life, but wanting to see that become a basic skill across um, any kind of doctor.
0: Wow. So it sounds like you're keeping very busy and we look forward to, to hearing about the results of these projects. Um Atta Grande, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Great pleasure too. Thank you for um, letting me talk to your listeners.